This is Mike Weinberg, author of Sales Truth, Debunk the Myths, Apply Powerful Principles, Win More New Sales. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both keep up with the latest ideas in the quickly changing fields of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you some time. This show is a labor of love that I do in my spare time. My day job is running a marketing agency where we work with manufacturers and industrial companies to help them grow by helping them earn the attention and trust of their prospective customers. For more, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. This episode is sponsored by David Merriman Scott's phenomenal New Marketing Mastery course that he developed with Tony Robbins. New Marketing Mastery will teach you step-by-step how to get your marketing in alignment with the way your customers want to buy. David spent three years putting together over 50 videos, dozens of infographics and worksheets, and a 50-page workbook to get your marketing to generate a lot more sales. And even nicer, Marketing Book Podcast listeners will get $500 off by entering promo code marketing book. To sign up, go to newmarketingmastery.com, but make sure to enter promo code marketing book for that $500 off. You can find a short video about the course and a link to it in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome back Mike Weinberg to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Sales Truth, Debunk the Myths, Apply Powerful Principles, Win More New Sales, published by HarperCollins. Mike Weinberg is a consultant, coach, speaker, and best-selling author on a mission to simplify sales. His business passion is helping companies, sales teams, and individual salespeople win more new sales, and his specialties are new business development and sales management. Mike has become one of the most trusted and sought-after sales experts in the world today, known for his blunt, tell-it-like-it-is style and his ability to share simple, practical, powerful, effective, and easy-to-implement concepts. There is more demand for his services than there is availability, which is why it's such an honor to be able to get on his calendar for this interview. Mike has spoken and consulted on five continents and has been named the number one sales expert to follow on Twitter. And interesting fact, he is the owner of a Porsche 911 Target 4S with the power kit. Mike, congratulations on Sales Truth. And welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. 
Doug, I am so excited to be here, and I was all geared up to lead with some blunt truth, and then you threw the car thing in there, and now I'm thinking about driving. <laughs> right. Well, and, and if I owned one of those, I would be probably thinking about driving. I'd probably be getting up just to look outside and see it or you know, look at pictures of it. But I knew that you were a big Porsche guy, and that uh, at the Outbound Conference, I've been to it twice. And the most re- one of the more recent ones, you had a special uh, Porsche event there, didn't you? We did. We uh, we had the VIP session at the Porsche Experience Center, which is right by Atlanta's airport. And since then, I've done a couple events myself there. It's really my happy place. <laughs> I, get, I get to enjoy the cars and the beauty and the museum and talk about sales and sales leadership. So that's great. That's really where I, I have my most fun. So Mike Weinberg, for those that are new to the podcast. Mike was uh, episode 64 when we talked about his excellent book, New Sales Simplified. And what's significant to me is that that was the very first sales book I ever had on the Marketing Book Podcast. And that book had been recommended and is still recommended by HubSpot for all their partners. And they, you know, they, they try to give us a little bit of coaching for you know, like a good channel program would, along with many other things they provide. And uh, they recommend the book. I read the book and I just thought, oh my goodness, marketers need to read this book and understand it. And I have since gone on to have, oh gosh, over 30 other interviews with authors of sales books, including your very close friends, Jeb Blunt, Mark Hunter, Anthony Anarino. And Mike, this episode will be episode 265. So I just want you to know that you don't have to wait 201 episodes to come back on again. I can't believe I even qualify to join you now that you're so big. So thanks for, <laughs> I'm honored to be with you, Doug. I still have smiles and, and I, I still get comments from people that listen to that first episode. So I'm looking forward to this dialogue. Well, you know, what's funny is I continue to recommend that book. I hear from listeners all the time, almost every day. From, you know, they, they message me on LinkedIn and ask me about uh, this or that and tell me what their situation is. And I'm very often able to say, oh, read this book, and I'll send them a link to that interview. And I always say, listen to the interview with the author, and then see if this might do it for you. And just last week, I was <laughs> I was messaging somebody with a link to that interview. So uh, I'm glad that they're still reaching out to you. So Mike, in this book, you didn't talk a lot about it, but just so that the listener can understand, you had, well, you still do, you really got it done in your sales career. You had a very successful sales career, and I want people to appreciate that before we start talking about the book. You know, I love selling, and I always remind my audiences and when I'm leading a workshop or wherever I am that I'm just a sales guy who loves to sell, and you know, now my passion is helping salespeople and sales teams win more new sales. But I always approach uh, my writing and my teaching as if I am a salesperson talking to peers, uh, not the outside expert or management, you know, handing down, you know, orders from on high. And I think that really helps the message be well received because it's coming from someone who considers himself part of the club. In fact, somewhere in, I don't remember even what chapter it is in sales truth, but I, I talk about the importance of us not whining about price. And I, I make the case on behalf of the sales union, not, not that there is one, but yes. if there was union of professional sellers, I, I would run for president. And frankly, I think I would win 
because I'm proud. I'm proud to be a salesperson. And I'm always reminding people, don't whine that our price is too high because that's what pays us and that's what gives us job security. So I, I am, I'm always approaching it as a salesperson. Yeah, I had, I had success in various sales roles and it's fun now uh, to do what I do because I regularly, Douglas, I, I meet people who can outsell me every week and I steal their best practices and their ideas and I write about them. You know, I may know more about selling because I'm doing consulting and I'm studying and I'm exposed to so many companies, but I love learning from good salespeople. That that really energizes me. Mm. And you do talk about other authors and uh, people that you learn from, even the guy that sold you your car that you have. Not not the Porsche, but the, uh, I think it was the Volvo. My Volvo. Yeah. yeah. So for those playing at home, you were mentioning chapter 14, you most certainly can win with an older product or a higher price, which I want to talk about in just a bit. But I want to quote from uh, page four of the book, and that's where you take us back to New Sales Simplified. And you say, the amount of noise and flat-out disinformation about sales and sales management are at an all-time high. It was bad seven years ago, so bad, particularly surrounding prospecting and developing new business, that I was motivated to write my first book, New Sales Simplified. And amazingly, as hard as it is to believe, the confusion and chaos are even worse today. How, how can that be? Are you, did you think when you wrote that first book that this would start to die down a bit? I did. I, I'm amused how long some of the fads and craziness and nonsense have lasted. But when, when charlatans preach nonsense that tickles the ears of gullible or struggling salespeople— it's very attractive. And, and what, what I think it's almost hard to articulate this, Doug, but um, the barrier to entry to being a sales expert or a sales thought leader today is really low. You need a LinkedIn profile and an internet connection. And yes, I, I wrote, it's, it's interesting even hearing you articulate it and reading from that page. I wrote the books with a similar motivation. The outcomes are different. I wrote the first book New Sales Simplified as the how-to book about what does it take to really win more new sales and how do you how do you prospect and how do you sharpen your message and the whole book is how-to. Seven years later, I wrote Sales Truth also to set the record straight, but this one I wrote really out of righteous anger, mm -hmm. um, just darn frustrated with a lot of the people in my own industry that preach garbage because they have a LinkedIn profile and an internet connection and even have somewhat large followings because they write things that people want to hear. But what I'm regularly reminding people is that likes are not the arbiter of sales truth. And, and just because someone is popular or you like what they're saying, it doesn't mean that the advice that they're preaching is effective. So the motivation to write this book was a, I wanted to set the record straight and B, and this is a little odd because I, I am blunt, but I also came off somewhat cocky in this book because I have real clients and I really have spoken and consulted on five continents in the past year. And I'm in all kinds of industries from big data to big defense to big distribution to little software and SaaS companies. And, and what I read on LinkedIn isn't true. I keep reading that everything in sales has changed and nothing that used to work still works today. And then if you dare deploy old fashioned methods like traditional prospecting as a blend to what you're doing in your great inbound marketing efforts, if you dare pick up the phone, you're a fool, you're a dinosaur, you're a Luddite. 
we should make fun of you and you're bound to fail. And if I contrast that with what I see with my own eyes in this eclectic mix of industries, which I serve, it's very different. And I see top producers today deploying the exact same best practices that they were using a few years ago and five years ago, in some cases, even 10 or more years ago. So that's really what drove me to write this was to to set the record straight and share what I'm seeing with my own eyes about who's bringing in more new sales today and why they're doing it. Mm. So as I was reading the book and when I've seen you give keynotes and and spoken to you, (laughs) I've never shared this with you, Mike Weinberg, but there's a a scene from one of the greatest movies in film history, and I'm not talking about Citizen Kane or Gone with the Wind. I'm getting nervous, Doug. I'm getting nervous. I'm talking okay. about Zoolander. And <laughs> that's where Will Ferrell, uh, who plays this villain, says, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. And I just thought, you know, that's that's not really what Mike's all about. But <laughs> as I read through your book, it seems like you almost are at your wit's end. And Let's just talk about one thing that grinds your gears, and then your blood pressure will continue to rise as the interview goes by. (laughs) I'm reaching for my medication as you start this question. Go ahead. Why, at the beginning of the book, did you have to say everything has not changed? Because there's this insatiable appetite in the sales community for the shortcut or the easy button, Mm -hmm. as Jeb Blunt or Anthony often says it. Everybody wants it to be true. Everybody wants it to be true that you don't need a prospect, that you don't need to do the hard work. If we would just put out enough content, if we would just tweet, if we would just, like one fool strongly recommended, if we would just use Kylie Jenner as our role model oh, yes. and take, take enough half-naked selfies of ourselves and put them on Instagram, or like someone just someone from overseas just posted this recently, if you would follow the model of Gary Vaynerchuk, who I think is brilliant but not the model for the typical professional B2B salesperson. Because you taking selfie videos of yourself wearing a ski cap in the summer dropping F-bombs is probably not going to bring you the type of leads that it brings VaynerMedia. Mm-hmm. And just like just like Kylie Jenner has, has turned her B-list celebrity status and her social media prowess into a billion dollars of net worth for the things that she sells, that doesn't mean that that practice – Right. We'll do the same for you if you're selling dental supplies or defense systems or industrial components or SaaS, right, in a business to business setting. So I think the, the reason I felt like it had to be said is because there are so many, dare I, dare I position it this way, lies being preached by people who all have an agenda because everyone who's preaching this nonsense is trying to sell you something. They've either got some social training solution or some other thing that is the perfect panacea to fix all that ails your sales. And every time you hear something like that, you just need to know there's an agenda and the person preaching it is trying to sell you something. And it's often not true. And just because their their articles are popular or it's trendy to make fun of people like me or salespeople who actually deploy old school methodology those happen to be the people that that are crushing it. And the reason people like the guys that do the outbound conference and I have so much business is because we're cleaning up the mess that's left behind from people thinking they can hope their way into filling the top of their sales funnel. And let me just say this, Doug, especially because of the world you operate in and your marketing audience. I love marketing. 
I love inbound marketing. I love leads. I love Seth Godin. I love tribes. I love social. A ton of my business comes from putting out intellectual property and then promoting it on social channels. I have great friends and I have clients where the relationships were formed on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Comma. Having said that, comma. All of those things are wonderful supplements to traditional business development methodology. They should clearly be used together. My beef is not with those forms of media. My beef is with the people preaching, you should only do the new and you should abandon the old. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why I'm so frustrated. The folks that say fill in the blank is dead, cold calling is dead, outbound prospecting is dead, you know, SEO is dead. I mean, I could go on. Let me just quote from chapter two, which is titled, Be Very Wary of the Nouveau Experts and False Teachers. I did not want to write this chapter, but my eyes and my conscience compelled me to. My intention here is not to be mean-spirited. It is simply to point out the bizarre inconsistencies between what some modern popular sales experts are proclaiming and what anyone who has succeeded in sales for any length of time has successfully led a sales organization or has a shred of common sense knows is true. Now, you did mention inbound, but let's talk a little bit more about some of these uh, sales fads or, or flavors of the day or bandwagon jumpers, whatever you want to call them, not to attack them, but to help people discern uh, what the next one that's going to be coming along? So to you know, walk us through some of these more recent examples like inbound marketing, inbound sales, social selling, uh, sales enablement, or account-based marketing or uh, account-based selling. To, to walk us through some of that. Yeah, this will be fun and somewhat dangerous. But let's start with the big one, especially because of of the business you're in. Inbound marketing. It's been around for a while, and I've been to conferences where I've heard brilliant things shared from Brian Halligan and you know early HubSpot and the, the power of inbound marketing, of which I am a great beneficiary. I love inbound marketing. Inbound marketing is effective. There are wonderful people in that space and many resellers of HubSpot who are genuine, authentic people who truly care and are experts at helping their clients develop, develop more leads and more business. The challenge I have is when people in that arena then start telling you it's the only way and you should put down the phone and stop sending your cold emails and don't do these other things because we have the fix and you are a fool from the dark ages worthy of ridicule if you dare deploy some of these older methods. And my simple comeback is HubSpot, the king, the gorilla of inbound marketing, has people making outbound phone calls. And I know this, right? Because the vice president of sales at HubSpot took me in the back and showed me the group of people that do it. And the book on their desk was New Sales Simplified. A whole floor of those people. Yes. And it's not to brag. Um, It's not, this isn't about me. It's just the reality of, it's the evidence that what I'm saying is actually true. And that when when morons tell you that way doesn't work, you need to do my way, Mm -hmm. that moron is always trying to sell you something. So that that's kind of the the inbound angle. So be be careful because I'm not I'm not dismissing inbound. Just like I'm not dis- dismissing social selling. Yes, it was a fad, and yes, it was 
a very popular for a long time to write about it. And yes, salespeople should certainly be using all of these tools on social platforms to connect with people, to gather information, to start relationships, to plant seeds, to warm people up. Um, but if you if you look at the reality, and I'm going to be really direct here for a minute, the the man who claims himself to be the founder and pioneer and father of social selling has been out of work about six times in the last eight years and is regularly seen on LinkedIn with cute hashtags asking people to help him find a job, okay? But he's proudly still the founder of social selling. The woman who ran a firm that she named hashtag social selling is no longer doing that business. Do I need to say anything else? Like if it was such a rage and it was such the perfect fix and it wasn't a fad, why why are, why is the founder and why is this other person who was the face of the of the the trend for such a long time not even in that business anymore? If these people had the answer and were so valuable, right? Would they not either have very big successful firms today, right? Or be the most valuable employee where they worked? So that's my caution. So that's why when when a moron in that in in, in that segment of the industry writes a LinkedIn post telling you that Kylie Jenner is your role model, someone needs to stand up and go, you know, that's dumb. You may be a good person. You may have, you may have value that you bring to your clients, but don't, please don't take a picture of Kylie Jenner and tell me that she's the example for my clients in variety of B2B type roles to follow. So, so, so that's those older trends. You know, you could talk about sales enablement. And I, I didn't make a lot of friends in, in when I made fun of the the sales enablement society in in the next chapter. Right, and also it seems like that term is still being defined. Douglas, the people who are the founders of the society and the chapter presidents can't even tell you what the hell sales enablement means. <laughs> so it's very hard for me. I mean, I think I think the line I use in the book it, it's it's a gigantic academic time suck of people like in a circle talking to each other, breathing their own exhaust. (laughs) It doesn't, I don't want to hear, please don't tell me that sales enablement is the thing that's going to fix our sales problem because no one can even tell me what it means. Right. And and I'm, I'm, I'm being extreme to make a point. There are lots of wonderful people in roles that are called sales enablement and they're doing their very best to arm, equip, challenge, coach, uh, provide tools for right. Sales, salespeople. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell a great story in chapter 16 of the strongest sales operations organization and executive I've ever seen and the incredible job that they've done equipping and arming their sales team and even how they customize their implementation of Salesforce. And th- there are great sales leaders and they're using new tools and methodologies. And I'm not against sales enablement any more than I'm against social selling. It's just the stupidity of the fad. You know, I, I talked about ABM, right? Account-based marketing or ABS, account-based sales. And my joke is that that's such a hot phrase the last year. I keep expecting to open LinkedIn one morning and find some post, the top 30 influencers in ABM. And everybody wants to be on that list. And my caution to sales leaders and to salespeople is just to be very careful about chasing the hot trend. It's almost like trying to invest in the mutual fund that was up 90% last year. Mm -hmm. You know what usually happens to that fund the next year? Down ninety percent. Yeah, you know that's not where you what you want to be buying. And I and the only people more gullible than salespeople are the people in my own industry who are desperate for work and they chase every fad and they rebrand themselves. And one day they're this expert, the next day they're into inbound, and then there are sales enablement gurus preaching ABM. And I'm like, stop, just stop. Here, here's the strongest way I can say this. 
I have never, ever seen a sales team struggle for lack of a new tool or a new process. And, and, as, and as you read in the chapter later on in the book about the best practices of those top two salespeople I've ever observed, mm-hmm. they don't even talk about tools and technology. They talk about work and basics and preparation and mastery. So my strongest coaching is be very careful when you think this tool or this tech or this process or this trick is going to fix your sales problem, right? The only thing I see working for, for, for salespeople to absolutely crush it and keep the funnel full and close more new business is when they master the fundamentals, when they get really good at creating, advancing, and closing sales opportunities. So it's just a caution to be be really, really careful. And you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead and say something you're probably gonna ask me later. But if if there's one takeaway that I would suggest to the sales community, and this is gonna sound bizarre because I'm out there on LinkedIn like everybody else writing articles and promoting my stuff and engaging. But I think most salespeople should spend less time on LinkedIn reading articles about how to sell. <laughs> and they should actually get to work. Right. Well, let me just put a period at the end of that sentence. I want to quote from a guy named Mike Weinberg, who said, let me make that point again from a different angle, because I desperately want you to digest this truth, despite what you hear and read from today's trendiest self-proclaimed thought leaders, I have never seen a salesperson or sales team fail because they lack a recently invented sales tool or because they had not yet adopted a newly created sales process. So, Mike, uh, let me just go back to something you mentioned earlier, and that is uh, pretty much the only thing that I've been thinking about since you mentioned it, which was uh, half-naked pictures of uh, Kylie Jenner on Instagram. Just so you know, I... As a community service, as a service to the world, because I'm a, I'm a humanitarian, I have not been posting half-naked selfies of myself on Instagram. Okay, so let's just, I don't want people, you know, pulling over their cars, listening to this, you know, trying to go find pictures of me doing that. I, I would not do that to the world. Well, Doug, I'll just help you with that for one second, and I appreciate your, your humanitarian bent. If you're having trouble getting a picture of Kylie Jenner out of your mind, while we're on this this recording, I will take a half naked picture of myself and I will text it to you. And that I promise you, you will, you will no longer be thinking about Kylie. Okay. You know, a great humanitarian, I'm, I'm already filling out my uh, Nobel prize uh, nomination for you. And I, when you get to Sweden and we've got lots of listeners in Sweden, I just want you to think of the little people think about me. So the other thing that comes to mind, though, enough about half-naked selfies, at least for a few minutes, was uh, the Revlon founder, Charles Revson, uh, maker of well, makeup. He once famously said, I don't sell makeup. I sell hope. <laughs> and that comes to mind when I keep hearing about all these different things, like some of the hit parade we just talked about, just as, a, as examples, you know, inbound sales, social selling, sales enablement, account-based marketing. Account. It's like they're selling hope because people want something simple and they want the, the, the miracle drug for whatever they're, they're trying to do. Let's talk about a number. and like, Actually, it's a percentage, though. I'm talking about the percentage 57%. 57%. You write that for at least the last seven years, maybe more, that 
57% number has been the most overused and misapplied statistic in the sales business. Please explain what that number is and why it is so misapplied. And and actually, you're not attacking the folks that did that research that generated that number. Wow. I love how you frame that. That That's the best I've heard that question set up. Thank you. Um, no, and I, lo- I love the way you positioned it. For those that are that are scratching your head, asking what is he talking about, the, the listeners uh, uh, say that a lot to themselves. Apparently. A lot, okay. yeah, not well, just so I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll fill them in. Um, in the sales world, for the last almost decade, the number fifty-seven percent is very popular because in the book, The Challenger Sale, they revealed the research from CEB, and I, I don't doubt the validity of the research that that showed them that in today's world, the buyer goes 57% on average through their buying process before engaging with a salesperson. And what happened was that innocent statistic that was probably created through some type of valid research, although I had my questions about it, which I'll share in a second, that statistic has been used, abused, and misapplied in more ways than you can imagine by people who are telling salespeople, see, I told you prospecting doesn't work. They're not going to talk to you or they're not going to meet with you until they get 57% through their buying process. And the moment I heard that statistic, I thought, that is the dumbest thing ever. And it's only true when lazy, reactive salespeople sit on their ass waiting for a lead to fall out of the sky from some buyer who downloaded your white paper or whatever it was that triggered that you're now supposed to go out and reach out to them because they got 57% through their process. In the companies where I consult and coach and train, we're, we're helping salespeople get engaged many times when the buyer is 0% through their buying process because they're not even shopping yet. But because my sales teams that I work with have ideal profile prospects and they do proactive selling, where they look to engage with prospects to create, not simply chase, opportunities. That's a whole other conversation, which was part of the motivation for writing this book. But when proactive salespeople have a strategic list and work to get meetings with people before they're shopping, they end up in the consultant seat. They're leading the prospect instead of following them, and really good things happen. And because that statistic was so popular because of the challenger sales success and because so many people in the industry kept using and misapplying it, it created this entire uh, almost mini generation of sellers who wanted to sit in reactive mode because when you told them to prospect for new business, they looked at you and said, well, I never really wanted a prospect and now I have the proof because there's no reason for me to pursue anybody that's not 57% down the path. The only problem with that is when Anthony Anarino interviewed the the authors of the challenger sale, they made it very clear that the, the research was never intended to be applied the way that it has. And I was very thankful a few years ago when serious decisions totally debunked that myth with their own data, which I mentioned in the book. And then right as I was writing uh, Sales Truth, I, I found some incredible re- more recent research from the Rain Group and Mike Schultz, who shared that in many cases, um, 82% of buyers accepted meetings from salespeople who approached them proactively. 
So I that's why I I, I wrote about that and 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 I, I made a, a ludicrous analogy in in that chapter. I mean, imagine the stupidity of of trying to picture this, like as if every buyer had a formalized buying process laid out in a flowchart on their desk, whether that's a CEO or an executive over a certain area of a business or even a procurement person or procurement weenie, as I call them later in the book. Oh, you don't hold but back that, there, yeah. I'll hold back on that. Um, but does anyone really have a flow chart with all these different phases lined out? And there's like this brick wall, like this firewall at the 57% line that says, do not talk to a potential value-creating, helpful salesperson who has insight and ideas and is an expert in this arena before you get to 57% through the process. No, nobody has that kind of process. So that's why I went so hard after that statistic because it's damaged a lot of sales results because people, they, they misquote it and they misuse it and they use it as a very convenient umbrella to hide under for reasons that they're not proactively pursuing more new business because they're waiting for their marketing engine to work. And I'm going to include links to those studies in your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com because I can imagine there's sales managers or CEOs or even marketers <laughs> who need to be able to show that proactive outbound prospecting is very effective. In fact, it's probably more effective now than it was in the past. You've got uh, Open View Labs, you've got the Serious Decisions, the Rain Group, all of that. Really, really great stuff. And again, you're not coming after the good folks at CEB, which is now part of Gartner. But to come full circle about that number 57, I want to go to page 57 of your book, which is the beginning of chapter five, titled, To Win More New Sales Requires Focus on Winning New Sales. Mike Weinberg, what compelled you to write such an obvious thing? That's pretty profound, isn't it? <laughs> Doug, I don't know how to say this nicely. I can't believe that companies pay me real money to tell them that. But the number one observation I have of why salespeople are not winning more new sales, and to me, a new sale is where you you really penetrate an existing account and sell them something new to grow that business. Or it's a new sale to someone that hasn't bought from you in the past. And the number one reason that salespeople don't bring in more new sales is because they don't spend time working on new sales. They're working, but they're not working on the things that create sales opportunities. They may be working 50 hours or more a week. They may process beautifully 167 emails a day and work to get to inbox zero. They may be the nicest people on the sales team. They may be the ones who volunteer to decorate for the Christmas party or clean the men's room. They are the ones who are first to run a part out to a customer who's in need. They're doing all kinds of wonderful, relational, service-oriented things, and people love them. But what they're not doing is bringing in net new business. And the reason is not because they can't sell or because they can't tell a story or because they can't run a sales call. The reason is because if you look at their calendar, very little time is carved out to work on developing new business. And that's why I am ridiculously obtuse on this topic. I remember hearing somewhere someone said, no one defaults to prospecting. I've heard that. <laughs> I think I say it. I think I say it every single day. It seared itself into my consciousness when I read it in New Sales Simplified. 
And <clears throat> but it's interesting though, you, you go into detail explaining this that you even the person that comes in, you have to put on your calendar new sales prospecting activities. And earlier in the day is actually better to do that. But you go even further and talk about how, okay, well, let's say there's a deal that's about ready to close. Why is it not a good idea to go ahead and take care of them first thing in the morning? Because, I mean, come on. It's the end of the quarter. You're about to get that. Oh, Doug, it's so hard. Here's the thing. Our instincts are bad. Our instincts, when we have a warm deal, we smell blood in the water. We're counting commission dollars. We want to get the thing over the finish line. We've already bought that Porsche in our mind. Yes, I'm a sales guy. I get it. The problem is most salespeople default first to doing service work. And then with the proactive selling time they have left over, the first thing they do is trying to close their hot opportunities. And then with whatever time they have left after that, they progress up the funnel to a cooler phase and they'll start working deals that are already active, people that were interested, you know, and they're trying to get those deals to a warmer phase. And what happens when you work backwards, when you work service first and then hot deals because you want to get them closed and then active opportunities, the part of your funnel that gets ignored is the top part or even above the top of the funnel, right above the funnel. So what happens is that salespeople spend a crazy little bit of time working to create new opportunities because they never get there. Because as you quoted me, no one defaults to prospecting ever because there's always something easier. There's always something more urgent and definitely something more attractive to do. And trying to close a hot deal is is definitely more fun and more attractive than picking up the phone and banging your head against the wall, trying to engage with a stranger and secure a discovery meeting. So that's why not only am I such an advocate of time blocking and really helping salespeople divide their energy across deals and accounts in all phases of the sales cycle. The really simple best practice that almost anyone who teaches what what I do would ascribe to is what if you got the ugly, dirty work out of the way first before the crap hits the fan in your world and definitely in your prospects world? And what if you carved out 90 minutes early in the morning? To actually get that heavy lifting and initial contacting and outreach out of the way so that then you freed up time later in the day to try to close hot deals, which obviously you're not going to skip, and do the service work that comes in. And what I'm advocating here is the opposite of how most people operate. Most people come in and they socialize and then they play in their inbox and they find a customer service issue. So they run around and try to fight the fire and then they do more social stuff and then they go to a team meeting and then they go go service an existing customer and then they work on a deal that they're playing with and, you know, do proposals and then the day's over and they didn't do one ounce of opportunity creation. And then the manager wants to know, well, how come there's nothing new in your funnel? And the reason is because you don't spend any time working on putting new stuff in the funnel, period. End of story. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about David Merriman Scott's new marketing mastery course and a very generous discount he's offering to marketing book podcast listeners. 
Two books have had the biggest impact on my marketing career, and one of them is David Merriman Scott's The New Rules of Marketing and PR. Naturally, I'm a big fan of David Merriman Scott, which is why he was the very first guest on the Marketing Book Podcast and why he's returned several times. His new marketing mastery course, Three Years in the Making, in collaboration with Tony Robbins, teaches you step-by-step the most important aspects of modern marketing so that your marketing can drive dramatically better sales results. Many of the mistakes I see companies make in their marketing can be avoided by following what's recommended in this comprehensive course. The new Marketing Mastery course has over 50 videos, over 25 infographics and worksheets, and a 50-page workbook that gives you step-by-step instructions on topics like buyer personas, content, social media, and building a business growth plan. Now, you can continue spending money having a good time going to marketing conferences or hiring consultants, but for a lot less, you can get this course, implement what he teaches, and start seeing measurable results. And your whole team can use it, which is why it's a great way to train your marketing team, particularly new hires. The knowledge you can get from the latest edition of the New Rules of Marketing and PR is why I continue to recommend it as the one book to help people get a better handle on what they need to understand about modern marketing and the modern buyer. Now, with this course, you can learn how to turn that knowledge into action. The secret to getting ahead is getting started. For you to get started, go to newmarketingmastery.com and enter the promo code MARKETINGBOOK to get $500 off the price. Go to newmarketingmastery.com and make sure to enter promo code MARKETINGBOOK to get $500 off. I also have a video about the course and a link to it in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now back to the show. Mm. So Mike, and this is going to upset some salespeople, I think, but you write that the most valuable salespeople don't chase opportunities. They create them. But I've got to say, Mike Weinberg, isn't that marketing's job? It is. And it's wonderful when marketing can produce enough leads and opportunities that our funnels would be so full, all of our time could be spent just trying to advance and close the opportunities that were handed to us. Wouldn't that be idealistic? And and there's a reason, you know, going way back to uh to Aaron Ross and predictable revenue and the SDR model, and I'm I'm not I'm not opposed to the SDR model. But there's a reality, and, and I, quote, I quote a person uh, in the book that actually told me this story in a, in a sales meeting, and it has to do with the fact that the very best sales hunters take full responsibility for filling their own funnel, and they never place blame on somebody else. They look at the funnel and say, it's on me to put enough stuff in the top that I always have a fat, healthy, moving pipeline, and th- those people are really good at balancing their time across across accounts and opportunities in various stages. I was leading a a workshop out in California a few years back. And in the room, it turned into kind of a bitch session where the salespeople and the account executives were whining about the quality and the lack of quantity of the appointments being set for them by the inside BDR, SDR team. And I let it go for a while. And before I even had a chance to cut it off, the top producer in the room smacked the table and said, stop it. Everyone just stop it. 
we should look at the appointments set for us by the SDR team as gravy, kind of like we look at Social Security here in America as a portion of our retirement income. We better not be counting on it. It's the extra. Right. And, and, and Doug, that's the difference between a top producing sales hunter who understands I own the funnel and I will take every good lead that comes my way and thank everyone for giving me those opportunities. But if the, what I'm handed isn't sufficient for me to make my number and achieve my goal, then it's on me to scratch more opportunities out of the dirt and turn over more rocks and dedicate as much time as necessary to working the top of the funnel. So that's not a pass for marketing to fail or for for the inbound piece not to work. Those are wonderful things when they happen. But I'm so tired of sales whiners complaining, my lean, I don't know, give me it. Stop it. Stop it. Top producers own it. They have internal locus of control. They take responsibility for the outcome and they create enough opportunities to keep the funnel full, period. Yes. And it was a great turn of the phrase where you talked about how in your career you've scratched opportunities out of the dirt and you created them out of the what might seem like thin air. You weren't waiting for them to come to you. So you had the right attitude. And in the book, you mentioned your dad a few times, and I, I really like that because we can learn a lot from our dads. And if my kids listen to this podcast, you know, hey, I can dream, can I, Mike? You know, even their dad might be able to teach them something, but I don't know. But you quote him, because now he was a sales guy, very successful. What's so funny, Doug, you said this earlier, he was a sales guy and he was a sales executive and a head of sales training at Revlon, the company you mentioned. Oh, I didn't realize that. Small world. Yeah. Yeah. So you said that, when, well, first off, when you were younger, you said, I don't want to be a sales guy. <laughs> I'm sure he just sure. laughed inside and, you know, loved you anyway. But he said that your number one goal in sales is to make your customer as successful as possible. As long as your motivation is to help the customer win, you will always win in sales. And that, for me, just spoke volumes about the right attitude. But what are some of the attitudes that are just killing sales effectiveness? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> that quote from my dad is powerful. And every time I share that, people, they listen and they go, yes. And I'll contrast that with the attitudes you're asking me to share with people that are not winning. And one of those attitudes is, I don't want to bother them. Mm. I'm a pest. Gee, I I don't like this prospecting thing because I know I'm going to have to call them a few times. And I don't really want to be that guy or that gal and be a pain in the bud and, a, and an annoyance. And if you adopt the principles that my dad was sharing and you truly view yourself as a value creator and a professional problem solver, and you know deep down, like most top producers believe, that your prospect is better off working with you and that they are probably stuck in some suboptimal situation and they have needs and they have desired outcomes for which you have a solution that provides those, those answers and those outcomes, isn't it on you to do everything possible to get in touch with those people. Because if you really want to help them win and you're motivated to bring them the best outcome, instead of viewing yourself as a pest or an annoyance, what if you saw yourself as reaching out to them because they need your help? Mm -hmm. 
and they're stuck. And so your motivation is pure. It's almost altruistic. Now nah, you're going to make money off of it. And obviously it's in your best interest when you sell something. But the people that are really good at selling, we never try to pull the wool over someone's eyes. We don't manipulate. We don't try to sell something to somebody unless it produces incredible value for them. So if you adopt the approach that my dad was advocating, that if your goal is to help the customer win, you're always going to win. One, you're fun to work with. Two, you're incredibly honest. Number three, you regularly tell prospects, you know what? After this conversation, I'm thinking we're probably not the best fit for you. Mm -hmm. And you walk away because you're selling from an abundance mentality because you know deep down inside there are plenty of people for whom you could bring great value and you're going to go pursue those people. And instead of being self-conscious that you're annoying them, you actually prospect harder because you want the meeting because you know they're stuck and they need your help. That is a great motivation to prospect. Mm. Yeah. Now, let's move on. There was a, a chapter about going after targeted accounts. And in my line of work and in, in marketing, one of the most helpful things that we can have is f- to know who are the targeted accounts that a client or, or maybe a prospect, who they want to go after. In other words, if we have they, if they've already crystallized who their ideal or dream client is, it makes the marketing that much more focused and effective. But sadly, most of the companies that come to us or I speak to, they don't, they don't have that. It's like it's completely missing. Why do so many companies um, not think about who their uh, ideal target customer is? Are they just waiting for stuff to come in? Are they getting busy? I mean, just it's so important. It's one of the chapters in your book. And yet, I, I see this, I don't know, all the time, whether they just don't have any idea, well, who do you want more of? Who's your most profitable customer? Yeah, Doug, I have no idea. Honestly, I don't know how this gets ignored, whether it's a sales leader abdicating the responsibility to point the team the right direction or it's a CEO in a smaller organization who's such a visionary that he or she can't focus enough to point the team the right direction, or it's incompetent marketing, but it doesn't work. And I'm not a marketer, and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, and I'm not a strategist, but this much I do know as a salesperson. The very first step for a successful sales attack is naming the names of whose business you want. Mm. And if you don't have a strategic, finite, written list of the accounts that you're committed to pursuing, then you are just faking it. You're playing at, ho- at at prospecting and trying to develop new business. You can't put together a sales attack unless you have crystal clarity about whose business you want and what it is you're selling. So it's step one. It's non-negotiable. Salespeople that have great strategic, finite, written target lists have success when they spend time working those lists. And people that don't, do not have success. Then it's just a total game of luck. And you have a great story in the book about this one person who he, he dressed badly. I got the impression he didn't really smell that good. He had bad breath. <laughs> he was difficult to deal with. And you just thought, how is this guy the number one salesperson in the company? And you spent time with him. And thank you for doing that, Mike, so that we didn't have to. But you wrote about it, and basically he was a like a savant at figuring out who the best companies were that he should be going after in terms of what their upside potential is and all that sort of thing. It was such a great story. 
Yeah, and I won't I won't tell too much of it because so, so folks can read it. But it was shocking to me. Uh, I'll just set up the story. Um, top producer, relatively new in the company, crushing it. Fattest pipeline, closing deals faster than anybody. And the CEO of the company looked at me and said, "Go figure out what this guy's doing because I think he's he's got customers on the take and he's bribing people because there's no way that <laughs> it's this is clearly criminal activity. This this guy clearly isn't the prototypical sales guy." And he had all those those terrible characteristics, except bad breath, which you mentioned, because that never works for a salesperson. But he, oh, he was see how see how the power of your narrative just put yeah. that into my head. So I it, take it, that he, back. You, you you assumed that on him, <laughs> but he he was unlikable. You didn't want to be with him. All I mean, nothing about him screamed sales star. And then when you take a look at how he focused on his accounts, uh, and I don't I won't go too much deeper, but this guy I was convinced was the number one guy simply because he spent the most time laser focused on the exact right accounts and he knew exactly why. And, and here's the thing, even an average talented or average likable or even below average likable salesperson who spends the right amount of time pursuing prospects or growable customers that look, smell and feel like people that could do a lot more business with us. That salesperson creates more opportunities and wins more new deals because the sales math works. And that strategic focus of going after the right types of prospects and growable customers um, just positions you. Because here's the thing. Some percent of the people that you're pursuing have a need or they're frustrated with their current situation or their current provider right now. And if you turn over enough rocks and have enough conversations with the right target list, good things happen. Yes, and there is a graphic on page 100, and I'm going to describe it for the listener because it's that simple. And if companies would just use what you have here in this graphic, okay? So it's a piece of paper with a line down the middle of the paper, okay? Everybody got that picture in their head? On the left-hand side, that left column, it has the following three words, growable, existing accounts. And that's where you list your current customers where there's more upside potential. And it doesn't mean you're going to ignore your customers where you can't sell them anymore. On the right side, there are two other things. At the top of the page, upper right-hand side of the page, it says ideal profile prospects. And then further down, it says dream clients. If we have this stuff, it makes the marketing so much more effective. We're able to move that much more quickly. Talk about pursuing the ideal profile prospect. And I'm wondering if companies don't want to dream about that or if they are trying to say to themselves, oh, we want everyone. One thing I'm sometimes able to ask is, who is your worst customer? Who are your worst customers? And that usually gets a pretty fast response. And I can say, all right, what, what... characteristics do they all have? Okay, well, let's go in the other direction. Who who are some of your better customers? Talk about what companies could be doing to figure out who their ideal profile prospects are. Wow. I I wish you were helping more companies I work with. Um, Those are great questions. And again, you know, I'm, I'm not a marketer. I'm not a strategist. But as a salesperson, I am looking for the path of least resistance and most likely success, right? So I don't want to reinvent the wheel when I'm prospecting. I want to understand the characteristics of the current accounts. What what size are they? What position in the company are the people that truly understand our value? 
what verticals are they in? Sometimes geographically, where are they? Um, these, what's going on in their industry? What other characteristics happen? You know, are they shrinking? Are they growing? Are they in a competitive situation? Because if if I can understand that, for a true sales hunter, the right target prospect list that looks a lot like um, your existing uh, best customers is a softball right down the middle. Because that's where I have a story and I have credibility and I have comfort and I can have I have all these case studies and I'm conversationally comfortable sharing. That's 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 exactly what we want. Ideal ideal profile prospects. And let me just backtrack too. I, I just want to highlight one really key word on the left side of that graphic, which you mentioned: growable, growable existing accounts. And the reason I'm so obtuse about this also is because so many salespeople spend. An inordinate amount of time over-serving, dare I say, babysitting their favorite customers, even if there's no growth potential. And I just want to throw some cold water on those salespeople for a minute. There is no data that says that over-serving an existing account who cannot buy more from you is going to create new revenue. Most of the time, what we're doing is actually wasting right? Precious, precious selling hours because we're over-serving people who can't buy more. And the opportunity cost is that we don't get out to see people who can buy more. So my strongest coaching to salespeople that managing a, that manage a book, a portfolio, a territory, and have account management responsibility, you really got to segment your existing accounts because you're not doing yourself any favors by making the people that already buy from you love you even more. And I'm not saying to ignore them or to drop the ball or not to service them. I'm not saying that, so don't put words in my mouth. But what I am saying is if you really want to grow the business, you got to go see the jerk customer that gives you 10% of his business when you should have 60. And even though you don't like that person and it's a harder sales call and you much rather bring a donut or run a part out to your friend because that makes you feel good, that's not moving the revenue needle. So I hope I hope that's helpful. You got to have a strategic list of both growable accounts if that's part of your responsibility and then these ideal profile prospects so that you know exactly where you need to spend your selling time. Mm. So let's talk just briefly about case studies. And <laughs> these things are maybe some of the most overcomplicated things. <laughs> That, that companies deal with. And again, in true Mike Weinberg style, you say every uh, solid usable case study has three very simple components. One, the customer situation we found them in or, or when they became engaged with us. Two, what we did. Three, the outcome. <laughs> Why is it so difficult for companies to arm their sales team with these case studies, not just written on the website, but being able to get the sales team to be able to talk in those terms? I have no stinking idea. It's the most simple concept in the world. Everybody turns it into like a government project when they (laughs) try to do case studies. I'm like, stop, we could do this in two days. Everybody write down your three favorite customers that freaking love you. And then let's figure out which of these we're going to use. I mean, what is more powerful than equipping, especially newer or younger salespeople, with a handful of stories that cover the gamut of the solutions that we provide. And the story has three components. You just outlined it. What was our prospect or client situation when we got engaged with them? Right? What was their challenge? What was their need? What was their problem? What did we do? And then what was the result? What was the outcome that we created? And 
I mean, my fantasy is that every salesperson would be conversationally comfortable, which means you actually memorize a handful of these. It doesn't have to be a whole massive document. It's just that outline. Because how powerful would it be if you're in a sales situation and you realize this prospect looks a lot like one of those clients where you had the same situation and say, oh my gosh, you remind me a lot of one of our, one of our clients. And whether you name the client or not, is in some in some companies you can't, mm-hmm. right? Confidentiality, and you're better off not naming them. In other cases, name dropping is wonderful. Well, and you just say, hey, you know, you look a lot like company A. They were challenged with this. Here's what we we created for them and how we implemented it. And this was the result that that you know that came from it. I mean, imagine if you had a handful of those, even six, seven, ten of them, <laughs> just in your mind. That every time you run into that type of situation, you open that file drawer and you pull out that story. I crave. That salespeople would all have something like that. Yes, and you use you just use the word story for those paying close attention. <laughs> Did you hear a story there? It's almost like this could be on every product sheet. Rather than saying this is our widget, you could say tell the story about somebody who had a problem. They found this, and we're talking maybe just three sentences here. But talk, Preach. yeah, Preach, Doug. what what Preach. what's there? So instead of saying this is our you know, technomatic widget, just say, t- tell a little bit of a story there. So we teased earlier this idea of you you can actually sell an expensive product and you could actually sell an old product. <laughs> so for anybody who says, well, our products are old, boss, we can't sell these, the competitors are newer, ours are 10 years old, or as frequently as mentioned by salespeople is uh, we're, 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 we can't compete on price. We, we're, 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 we got to reduce our prices to be able to sell. What say you, Mike Weinberg? I'm going to keep this brief, Doug. I'm, I could cry every time I hear a salesperson say, you know, if we had a newer product, I'd sell more. Or if I had a better price, I would sell more. Duh. And if we had the lowest price and the newest product, you know what else? We wouldn't need you. The job of a professional salesperson is to justify your premium price through the way you sell and your sales process. There are lots of salespeople having tremendous success selling not the latest and greatest offering. And I tell a, a long story. Yes, about excellent stories. There. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really helpful. And it, and a lot of it's mindset. And I'm going to give my friend Anthony Anarino a lot of credit here from really his first book, You know, the, which is a great book with a dumb title, The Only the only sales guide you'll ever need. Yeah, and which, now, now he's written two other books. So, like, yeah, he had yeah. a three book contract. Yeah, you had me at that one. No, it wasn't right. But um, I was I was honored to write the forward to that book, and it's such a great. book. And he wrote the forward to your book. We should add. He did, and then that it, we we really aligned. And I mean, he's like my big brother in the industry, and I think he's the smartest sales mind on the planet. And in in that book, the only sales guide you'll ever need. He tells you who you need to be to be a top producing salesperson. And my summary of that in the forward, I basically said, paraphrasing Anthony, sales success is not situational. It's not the product. It's not the company. It's not the competitor. It's not the market. It's you. And top producers take ownership of, of outcomes. And in every company I'm in, even when they have old products or higher pricing, there are salespeople that figure it out. And, I, and that one story I tell in the book, it was really interesting. A group of, of really crafty salespeople, when challenged to go increase market share of this very, very old model product that they were selling, figured out what the advantages their old product had 
versus some of the newer, less reliable product in the marketplace that was all hot and trendy. Mm -hmm. And this very small band of brothers went out and crushed it and took market share away from the competition selling an ancient product. And when that company had a new product, guess who sold the most of it? Not the ones clamoring for a new product, but the ones that knew how to sell the old product. Which only furthers the point, right? Like that's it's so beautiful. So all of that to say it's not the product and it's not the price. And my caution is be very careful, salespeople, when you whine that you need newer product and lower pricing because what you're kind of saying without admitting it is that I need help and I don't have the sales skills or the confidence or the know-how in the business to find real opportunities. And if you don't give me this better product or this best price, I'm going to keep struggling. The leads are weak. You're weak. <laughs> Sorry. You know, I never I never quote that movie because it's so dark, but that's a great line. <laughs> well, for me, I just can't watch that section of the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross movie where Alec Baldwin delivers that pep talk in quotes without just laughing uproariously because it's so funny to me. But but then again, it's like watching the first 10 minutes of Full Metal Jacket where Arlie Ermey is the drill sergeant in the Marine Corps. Again, I, I can't stop laughing. But having Ooh. served in the military and been yelled at by some of the best in the world, it, it's just funny to me. And the first time I ever had my wife watch that, after we'd been married a number of years, and I, I figured it was safe to have her watch it at that point. She watched it and she was horrified by the performance, you know, but she was even more horrified that I couldn't stop laughing. And, and, <laughs> and, and once again, she was probably saying to herself, as she says frequently, I'm sure, you know, what was I thinking when I married that guy? Yeah, so I have, I believe me, I'm, I'm same situation in my marriage. No, nobody looks at my wife and me after getting to know us and thinks that she got the best of this deal. <laughs> right. That's, that's my that's my dedication in my first book. I, she is the proof I can sell. So I get it. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, Mike, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? You can do this. There's a theme that runs through the book, and then it's really driven home in, in Chapter 15 where I highlight these two top sales professionals. One guy sells cars, and the other guy sells giant financial deals for one of the largest companies in America selling to other giant companies in America. And the message is this, you can do this. The people who are outstanding at sales are not freaks of nature and they don't have tricks and they don't have shortcuts. They work their ass off and they prepare really hard backstage. So when they're front stage, they're ready to go and they practice and they know their business and they know their competitors and they know their product and they have a great messaging and, and they've mastered the basics. And if there's a theme of sales truth, it's that there are no shortcuts. So get off of LinkedIn and stop looking for them because there's enough idiots out there that know you're gullible and they're going to offer you some. Just go master the basics and the fundamentals. That's what's going to change your success, whether you're in management or you're in sales. That is sales truth. Mike, what is one thing a listener could do today to put in action any one of the many ideas from your book? I'm going to give you a three-part answer to the one thing, and it's the simple framework for what it takes to get new business. So it sounds like a bonus. 
I asked for one. We're getting the, once again, Mike Weinberg over delivering. Please go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. That, thank you for not critiquing my inability to give you one answer. You, you got it, it. This is under the vein of mastering the basics. The basics and selling come from targeting the right accounts, fixing your messaging so that it's, it's customer issue and outcome focused, and then taking back your calendar. So you spend more time selling. I'm telling you, there are people working 50, 60 hours a week, but they're not selling because they're not working on things that create, advance, and close sales opportunities. And those are the only three verbs that matter. So if you really want to win at sales, the one thing you need to do is these three things. Nail down your target list. Fix your message so that you're other-centered and you can tell that story to people about how you help them, not what you do and about your company and about your product, but, but how you help people and what the outcomes you create are. And then number three Get control of your calendar so you are spending time creating, advancing, and closing opportunities, not playing customer service, you know, concierge or inbox jockey. Mm-hmm. Which Those feel things, good. Which feel good. Yeah. Well, and, and and that's the problem. In sales, we don't get paid to do work. No one's measuring hours or emails sent. They're measuring funnel. What's opportunity? What opportunities are put in, what opportunities advanced, and what opportunities closed. So you need to spend more time doing those things. Sales is still simple. It's still simple. So get the heck off of LinkedIn looking for the shortcut and master the basics. Mm. It's simple to make things hard, but it's hard to make things simple. And Mike, once again, you have done that here. Uh, It's so practical and so common sense oriented that frankly, it hurts. So Mike, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or heard about looking forward to seeing? Wow. I have read a few recently. I had a good uh, vacation and also uh, I've been working on my own productivity in the hopes of A, getting myself straightened out and B, that seems to be one of the biggest issues the executives, managers, and salespeople that I work with are facing. So I have branched out my reading and I've spent a lot of time with Michael Hyatt, Mm. Free to Focus. Nur Eyal, I'm not sure I'm saying the author's name right, has a book called Indistractable. Yeah, he was on the podcast, Near Eyal. Oh, is that, how do you say it? Near Eyal. Okay. Yeah, like it's I, A-Y-A-L. I, I listened to that episode. There was some really good truth, and I, I, I got a couple of gems out of Indistractable. Um, Cal Newport, uh, uh, Deep Work. I'm really trying to this, – this is, this is the thing, Doug. We're all screwed and stuck, right? We all love our smartphones and think we're so productive, but – 98% of us are addicted and overconnected and overwhelmed. And these things aren't going away. So if we don't figure out how to get back our calendar and work on high value activities and maintain our energy, we're in deep, deep trouble. And whether you're a college student or you're a 60 year old executive, um, we're all struggling with this right now. And so those are the types of things I'm reading. And I, I'm just a big Michael Hyatt fan. He's really, really helped me the last couple of years, his content, um, get more focused. Yes. He's, he's terrific. And, uh, those, uh, books about uh, becoming less distractible and more productive, it brought to mind one other story or joke you had in your book about how people are obsessed with checking their email all the time. And you, I think at some workshops, you'll say, guys, you know, when my dad was selling back in the sixties, was he walking out to the mailbox? (laughs) every five minutes to see if there was mail there. Oh yeah. I quoted it. A, uh, 
I, I got it from a guy. It was a blog post. I can't remember which which one. There were a couple people, um, but that was that was his analogy. And I, I give the credit in the book to whoever told the story. But it's think how stupid it would be if every five minutes you got up from your desk to check the mailbox. That's what we do with email today. It's a constant interruption. Yes. It's the bane of our existence. It is the bane of our existence. And your cell phone doesn't help. And I'll just say one more thing as long as we're wrapping. You salespeople that tell your customers stupid stuff like, I'm your gal. I'm your guy. You text me if you need anything. That's so stupid. Use other people in your company. Yeah, serve your customers, but you don't want to be the go-to personal servant and concierge of every account, or you'll never sell anything. <sighs> yes, it's so true. And uh, you talk about how people shouldn't do that. And yesterday, I was watching a rerun of The Office and uh, later in the seasons, and Andy Bernard who uh, had went off to start his own paper company, he was calling on this prospect that was looking to uh, change. And he got in there and he said, this is my phone number, my personal cell phone number, and I want you to be able to call it at any time. And the prospect said, yeah, but every salesperson (laughs) is telling me that. And he said, I know, which is why I'm giving you a key to my house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> stop by anytime. You can hang out, stay there for a couple of weeks. No other salesperson's <laughs> going to do that. So once again, Mike, you see, even when I'm watching The Office, <laughs> you're there. You're there. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to the books that uh, Mike has mentioned, uh, his website, uh, his social media, including his LinkedIn profile. So I hope that listeners will be able to connect with you, follow you, and uh, please thank him for joining us on the show. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Sales Truth. Debunk the myths, apply powerful principles, win more new sales. The author is Mike Weinberg. Mike, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. This is always a joy. Thank you so much, Douglas. And that closes the book on episode 265 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, David Merriman Scott's new marketing mastery course. Get $500 off with promo code MARKETINGBOOK when you check out at newmarketingmastery.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Amanda Slavin to talk about her book, The Seventh Level, Transform Your Business Through Meaningful Engagement with Your Customers and Employees. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Jessica Ambrose.